Welcome back everyone. Today's episode is focused on racial healing, what it is, why it can be transformative, and different ways of thinking about approaching it. We're focusing on racial healing given it is a central pillar of the truth, racial healing, and transformation framework being advanced by the American Association of Colleges and Universities and the Kellogg Foundation. This framework is the focus of our podcast this season. Today, we hear from Sharon Stroy and Dr. April Alexander about racial healing from the perspective of this framework. We also have with us Michael Vidal, who also engages in healing work through dialogues, specifically through intergroup dialogue. In this episode, we talk about the spaces we create as containers for working together in higher education to advance humanity. I now turn it over to Truth to introduce Sharon Stroy and then to Omar to introduce Dr. Alexander. Thank you for joining us today. Sharon Shroy currently serves as the Director of Public Engagement in the School of Public Affairs and Administration at Rutgers University, Newark, where she also serves as the Director of the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Center at Rutgers. Sharon is a strategic and transformative leader with the ability to create empowering and inclusive spaces and places for individuals. Sharon is also a trained racial healing circle practitioner and has facilitated over 150 racial healing circles and workshops engaging 1500 plus participants since 2018 in multiple sectors to incorporate racial healing into their everyday practices. Dr. April Alexander is the Metrolina Distinguished Scholar in Health and Public Policy at UNC Charlotte. She received her doctorate in clinical psychology from the Florida Institute of Technology with concentrations in forensic psychology and child and family therapy. Dr. Alexander's research and clinical work focus on violence and victimization, human sexuality, and trauma-informed and culturally-informed practice. Thank you, Truth and Omar, for those introductions. Also with us today is Michael Vidal. Michael is currently the Interim Director for the Puerto Rican and Latin American Cultural Center at UConn, as well as the Director of Diversity and Inclusion Initiatives. Prior to these roles, Michael served in a similar role at Clark University, where he worked to develop, implement, and coordinate internal diversity programs and served as a research lead for the Office of Diversity and Inclusive Excellence. Prior to that work, he served as a program manager at the National Conference for Community and Justice, a nationally recognized organization for high quality skill-based workshops that train professionals on identity-based topics relevant for schools and workplaces. Across these positions, Michael has obtained and provided extensive training to advance the knowledge and skill various leaders must have to engage in identity-based learning, conflict resolution, and community healing. We hope you will enjoy this discussion and learn from it as much as we did. I now turn it over to Omar for our land acknowledgement. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. So we're going to start our conversation today with the Kellogg's Foundation definition of racial healing. So racial healing recognizes the need to acknowledge and tell the truth about past wrongs created by individual and systemic racism and address the present circumstances. It is a process and tool that can facilitate trust and build authentic relationships that bridge divides created by real and perceived differences. So April, can you please share in your own words, what is racial healing and how you view it as essential to the broader truth, racial healing and transformation framework? Yeah, thank you for that question. Thank you for having me. Um, I think the Kellogg Foundation is right in alignment with how I think about racial healing, that for a lot of us, we need to, as a society, reflect on the impacts that settler colonialism has had on our world and those effects being continued on to today. So when we're talking about settler colonialism, really reflecting on the genocide and labor exploitation and the loss of 
life and freedom uh, that so many indigenous and black folks um, across the globe have had. When we're in pursuit of having racial healing, we need to think about how we're still not acknowledging the effects of racism and oppression in our um, communities. Of what would it look like for us to actually tell the truth about what happened? What would it look like, especially in this time where we're having an attack on history, to tell the truth about what has happened to communities throughout their history. What would it look like to know our backgrounds and upbringings and who we are and where we've come from? Not just one affinity month of the year, but year round of reflecting on what that looks like. And not just at the national scope, at the local scope that I now have affinity for learning about local history and how historically marginalized groups have transformed communities. So as we're approaching looking at models of truth and reconciliation, it is starting with that truth. How do we come together as communities and reflect on the harms that have been caused through settler colonialism? We've seen these models in places like South Africa, Australia, as they are thinking about the harms that have been caused to indigenous persons and African persons throughout the diaspora. So, you know, if we're talking about a national conversation, we haven't even got there yet. And again, my fears are that this current attack on history, on critical race studies is further pushing us away from truly achieving radical healing if we can't even get to the acknowledgement step first. And then I think ultimately it is just thinking about a process in which not just heal, but rebuild what our communities look like. That I don't know if we can truly heal from everything that has occurred historically, but I think we can rebuild and imagine a new future where we're not stuck with these oppressive mechanisms in institutions, in interpersonal relationships, etc. Beautiful. Thank you so much, April, for that answer. And I really loved what you shared that, you know, that there is this theme of us tending to attribute these celebrations to certain months of the year, but it should be a continuous yearly, daily, you know, process in order to acknowledge the consistent racism that our communities experience. Um, and that it's not only a process of healing, but rebuilding, reimagining, right? A new, a better future. And so I really appreciate that thoughtful answer that moves forward into the recognition of just our present reality, right? And I would love to hear the perspective of Sharon, you know, and that some folks in the United States and our present society, you know, may think that settler colonialism, the genocide of indigenous peoples, the enslavement of African peoples are, are terrible events of the past, but yet have seemingly no bearing on the present. And I, I wonder, Sharon, if you could speak to the ways the racial healing framework might be a potential pathway for more people to understand the past atrocities that are still very much present and impact our society today. What's so interesting is that one of the things that I've raised my children on, if you don't know your past, um, you definitely don't understand your present and you cannot go into the future. And these past atrocities still have a very present impact on everyone today. These atrocities are the foundation of our democratic society. These atrocities are the foundations of all of the systems. All of the systems that we operate in, government, political, financial, education, healthcare, I mean, I mean, pick one, legal, transportation, housing, and all of these systems were supported and legalized by federal, state, local laws. So what happens? Because it is the law of the land, it then becomes part of our values and belief system. And so because this is part of our belief system, our biases are ever present. When the narrative from the media and from the, the leaders at large are saying that it's okay to marginalize groups of people simply based on their physical characteristics, well, the truth, racial healing and transformation framework is designed to dismantle this myth of a hierarchy of human value this fallacy that because of your physical characteristics generates that you're at the top of the food chain. Well, that's the fallacy, that's the myth, but that is grounded in our belief system, which is what needs to be dismantled because it's our belief systems that establish policy, the belief system that establish procedures, programs, the laws of the land all grounded in our belief system. 
So the racial healing framework is designed to bring people together to share stories, to actually recognize that, wait a minute, we have something in common that is grounded in our humanity. And that's where we have to start. So Dr. Gail Christopher, the architect of the TRHT framework, when we were being trained as directors, she said something that resonated with me and I still use it. After protests, policies, and programs, racism and oppression is still alive and well. What are we missing? Humanity. Well, the humanity is grounded in our belief system. And so the framework allows us to engage people from diverse backgrounds based on a series of questions and prompts to allow everyone to be on a individualized journey. And then you hear somebody else's story. Well, I went through the same thing, but you live in the Northeast and I was raised in the Southwest. Well, guess what? We actually have more in common than we do different. But when we have systems and power structures that benefit our division, the divide, the systems are set up to keep us apart. And so it's no longer a top-down approach. It has to be a grassroots movement, which is what the racial healing framework is designed on. And it is for the people to transform the systems. But we can't transform anything as April stated, if we're not willing to talk about it. We have to acknowledge and tell the truth. I don't expect people to necessarily agree or to be willing to, what are we gonna do about it or to feel guilty because of what their ancestors did. I just need you to acknowledge the truth and be willing to sit down and talk about it. But we're seeing it right now in this conversation about the history and not willing to talk about it and banning books, everybody's gonna suffer. Everyone is going to suffer, not just the ones that are continually to be marginalized. Hence the conversation in the naming of truth, racial healing, and then transformation. If we don't acknowledge the truth, it's the racial healing comes in the conversation and the storytelling. Until we get there, then our society is transformed. But if we can't even have a conversation about this happened, settler colonialism, the extinction of indigenous people and the enslavement of Africans, it happened. Can we talk about it? If we can't do that, the transformation is never gonna occur. That's really powerful in thinking about how much power there is in just acknowledging what was so, you know, and yet, as you, April and Sharon, you both mentioned, there's such a resistance and a backlash to the naming of what's so, even, you know, with New York Times, you know, 1619 project, you know, thinking about something as naming, you know, some truths and then having a lot of backlash around that. And I wonder how racial healing, as, as, as we're talking about it here, can provide a container for opening ourselves up for those truths to be understood, to be acknowledged, and for that process of, of truth-telling to be part of the healing that moves us forward. Um, Michael, I'm wondering if you could share a bit about your perspective on racial healing, given the work that you've done. You're coming at it from a slightly different angle based on work that you've done with the National Conference for Community and Justice and also intergroup dialogue. It seems like there's some similarities, but there's also some differences. And I'm imagining that there's space for racial healing to look differently and, dif and, and to enter it in different ways. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit from your perspective, what does racial healing look like, particularly as we think about it happening in higher education institutions? Absolutely. And I think, you know, Milagros, you talked about the importance of creating a container for that engagement to happen. And it doesn't surprise me that there are powerful interests in our 
country who understand that there is power in that container and what comes from bringing people together to to engage in that practice of truth telling and really naming the ugly because i think there is something on the other side of that right and and so with that i think i come from this really from the frame of considerations so in the work that i've done in the way that i've seen folks in either healing circles or in a group dialogue spaces in terms of the way that they are, you know, I can identify moments where I can see a shift in attitudes and behaviors of, you know, how folks came into the experience and then how they leave that experience. And so I think just, you know, anecdotally and of course, through some assessments, you know, we are able to, to measure and see that there is an impact and there is relevance and importance to having racial healing circles or healing spaces or intergroup dialogue spaces to to really unpack some of what's already been shared. And so some of the considerations that I just want to offer that I think can, I have found both, I think, exist within and outside of the academy, but I think offer, of course, I think just some, some things for practitioners and folks who are thinking about being in these spaces, um, things for them to sort of consider. The one thing that I'm reminded is that I think there are people who have the opportunity to make meaning of their experience, and then there are other people who just simply are experiencing their experience. And so I think um, the I, I think there's an assumption, and I've internalized this assumption sometimes, and I have to check myself that there is a power and a privilege in being able to construct time to be with yourself and to be with other people in community to do that meaning making. I, I think in, in higher ed, I think it's becoming more of a, becoming more of a practice, but I, I, I realize, right, that there are young people, there are adults, there are working professionals who have done this work their whole lives, who have never been in a room with someone else to actually do this work. And so that's what gives me pause, is that the simple act of bringing people together to make meaning of their experience is actually not as common as I think we believe it is. And so that's sort of a consideration that I hold very close to me and not really assume that. I also think about what our motivation is behind <laughs> The decision to bring people together to engage in this work, is it coming at the tail end of an incident that has shaken up the community? Or are people coming together as a way to be just proactive to Sharon's point, because we're trying to engage in our humanness, <laughs> we're trying to do this work. And so I think the motivation oftentimes shapes and impacts people's capacity or, or the level to which they decide to go there, right? With themselves and other people. And what I have found is that if it's at the sort of at the tail end of an incident that has really impacted the community, that really overshadows the heart, I think, of trying to engage in some of, of what's been shared thus far in terms of the, the desired outcomes of a racial healing circle or an intergroup dialogue space. And then I also think that, especially in higher education, those of us who are people of color or just find ourselves in the margins, we're oftentimes navigating this liminal space of both invisibility and hypervisibility. And that can be a very painful space to navigate as an individual is, I feel invisible all the time. But then when I am visible, it is in, I feel like I'm under a microscope and that's either because again of an incident or something took place or there's a national conversation about an issue and I feel all eyes are on me. And so that's another consideration that I think again, really impacts and informs how people engage or the heart, that, the heart space that people are in to really do the work. And again, I think it's it's that that liminal space of when am I oftentimes feeling like I'm being rendered invisible, but then when I am made visible, it's done in these really explicit ways that do not feel like it's really centering my humanness. <laughs> and with that, I think, you know, while I'll 
end just with this other piece around the question of what does it mean to pursue healing in the very place that has actually caused harm. So I think about space and place and what does it mean to engage in a practice of healing in literally the physical location and with the people that actually have caused the harm. And so um, when I think about creating a racial healing circle or an intergroup dialogue space, I am thinking location, location, location. Do we get them out of the place that caused the harm? I think that's a question. You know, I think folks, there's different camps. There's different philosophies, I think, about do we do that work in the space or do we give people a little bit of a break so that they're able to enter and really engage in that practice? And so I have one more note around like replenishment. Like how do we then pour back into people when they're asked <laughs> to participate in this way. I would love to hear, of course, from, from April and Sharon, but those are, again, just some, some major considerations that I have considered and I think have been really helpful for both as a, as a participant, but also as a facilitator and a holder, a co-holder of that space with a community. Yeah, I really appreciate some of your notes about, you know, where are the spaces that we do this work? Because for many of us, we are trying to do this work in historically white institutions that were created or, again, going back to Sharon's point, a policy had policies to exclude historically marginalized and excluded populations. So how do we do this work in a space that has that history that, again, we might not be telling the truth about or fully acknowledging? And then a space that is also continuing to do harm. So yes, I like kind of the notes that you were saying that kind of reflected on me is just thinking about these last few years and all these institutions creating these statements and BLM policies and action plans. And then, you know, a couple of days later, there's still harm being done. Uh, here we are almost three years out and we still haven't seen in a lot of spaces really transformed to change. If you're going to say you're doing anti-racism or decolonizing higher ed, do you actually know what that means? Because that is going to mean some form of repair, reparations, restitution, whatever, but the conversation stops there. So thinking about, well, yeah, where do we create these spaces, especially for people who are continuing to be harmed? How are you conducting, you know, some of these healing circles and spaces where maybe the wounds are very fresh and very much there? You know, the, everything that you said, Michael, so resonated with me and the work that I do at Rutgers University, Newark. And so, first of all, we are a 256-year-old colonial institution with our own history of slavery. You know, as part of my labor acknowledgement when I start a racial healing circle acknowledged that 66 individuals would auction off to the one of the founders of Rutgers University. And so we're a colonial institution, we're a state institution located in multiple locations throughout New Jersey, which are on lands that are inner city, suburban, rural, with students from all demographics and being mindful that they're coming to spaces where people are sitting in a position of power and that they are the experts and that they don't necessarily need to understand why this particular student from the city of Newark is having some external challenges. So for me and the work that I do, when we launched the TRHT Center in Newark, we were intentional not to have the center located at the university. So we partnered with the Newark Public Library and their branch lo branch locations throughout the city of Newark because there was a narrative, even in the city of Newark, there was a narrative that the residents in Newark didn't feel they belonged here. So let's engage the residents in the city of Newark in the seven different locations, five wards in the city and each ward represented a different demographic. So if I was in the East War where there was a huge Latino Hispanic population, I made sure that I had students 
who were bilingual and made sure that the programming was done in the languages of those communities. In the South War, we had a older part of the city where the residents were a lot older and transportation to the downtown Newark area was not possible. So we made sure we did programming there. And that was just some of the work that we did before George Floyd and before COVID. Once that occurred, also at the same time, in 2020, we hired our first African-American president who came in as a, his research interests were African-American history. And his first mandate was every academic department, unit, school had to develop a DEI strategy. Well, now we have people who have been at the institution two years or 30 years are now part of a DEI committee and they've never talked about diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, belonging before. Now they need to come together and come up with a strategy. So the work at the center shifted. And so if you want to come up with a DEI strategy, how are the committee members having these conversations? And to your point, Michael, about space and place became extremely important and so we leverage, I leverage the virtual space, the virtual space where people were remote in different locations to really get them to come together in this breakout spaces. Because yes, that space that has caused harm, I've definitely seen some tears and emotions and they're still trying to navigate the place that caused harm, COVID, their families, Let's talk about what does that really look like in a racial healing circle, but also where did that first narrative begin? And so, for example, one of our introductory questions that I use all the time, your full name, your birth order, and where were your great grandparents born? Level playing field, because everybody has a great grandparent. It may not be a positive story. You may not know. But unless you are indigenous, native indigenous to this land, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, we're all from someplace else. And so let's figure out where that first narrative came from. And to your other point, Michael, about how do we make sure that this is not just a monthly affinity group activity, for me is how do I integrate the TRHT framework in your house? So I'm not coming into your house to tell you how to run it and tell you what to do, but let's talk about what have been some of your challenges? What have been some of their pain points? What have been some of the issues that your colleagues in a particular department organization have faced? But let's use this framework of humanity and integrate it into your everyday operations. And it looks differently for each department, each entity, to where it's not just a one and done or you know one event. It really is about integrating the framework into your everyday living space. And so you know, I'm listening to you taking that into consideration. Let's be strategic about it. Let's not just do it because it's Black History Month or Women's History Month or um, AAPI. What does this look like for healing in your department, your company, your arts organization, even work in communities that are predominantly white? What does this work look like for you every day? And one of the last thing that I want to share is when you talk about being the participant, um, the practitioner, and there are days where I feel invisible, and then there are days where I am hyper visible. I recognize that this work is a forever endeavor and that I may not solve any problem today and that I need to make sure that I take care of myself. And being mindful of even the people that I work with, that the work that you're doing authentically and from a sincere place is forever. We didn't get here in two weeks, 400 plus years. 
and even longer than that. So it's a forever endeavor, and let's see what I can accomplish today. That's a really powerful point about the work being forever and the necessity to you know, care for yourself and your well-being in doing this work because it is a forever project. And so, you know, you you are planting seeds, like we were saying earlier, for the next generation and hopefully creating spaces and some change that allows them to work and advance the work a little step further than where you left it, perhaps, right? But the work will continue. Those will be a forever project. I have a quick question for, for the three of you, actually, about this idea of connecting people around their humanity, because it is profoundly transformative to think about, wow, how can we getting people together to see each other and engage with each other from the place of their humanity? But I wonder, and I would love to learn from the three of you, your perspective, if it's a challenge for people of color, particularly black and indigenous and other people of color to enter a racial healing space where it's about let's get to the place of our common humanity when they're in their everyday lives in this society, their humanity is negated, you know? And so, and other people's humanities always upheld, acknowledged, and you know supported and cultivated so when you enter into a racial healing space and you say we're going to play be at this place of common humanity how do you how do you engage with that when there's pain that needs to be seen in order for the humanity to be understood i'm wondering what the three of you think i actually wait a minute i actually like to jump in there this is where the process that i think gail christopher designed makes to your point, makes each racial healing circle and workshop impactful. And how do you engage people in their common humanity? It is the process of the racial healing circles that I think um, allows that. The activities require active listening. But if you understand, I think the goal of each person or the understanding the goal of each group that you're bringing together. If you're understanding that you're going to design prompts that get to that goal of really wanting people to have a journey and an experience in a 90 minute racial healing circle. And so let me use an example of work that I do with the medical school at Rutgers. And I work with different departments. And so I am working with the pediatric residents in the emergency room space. And so we meet at 8 a.m. for five months, once a month. And each racial healing circle has a particular theme. And the one that was so impactful focused on how to avoid bias in decision making. So we start with some light questions about who helped you make the decision to become a doctor? Who was the person from a different background that helped you navigate this space? So it becomes very individualized. And then as you build up with the prompts and the question, share a story about a time where you've made, you regretted a decision and what was the outcome? Was it negative or positive? And the response in the conversations was about, well, when a child dies, no matter what decision you made, it you're gonna think it's negative or you made the wrong decision because the, there's a loss of life. But how is your bias about people of color, about children, how are you making decisions when it becomes life and death? And so we want people, I, I definitely want people that when they leave a racial healing circle, that they are thinking about how they are making decisions about somebody else's life. But we always connect it back to, well, what happened to you? And so when they start, and there are people that, you know, in those spaces you can share, you don't have to share, 
But when you walk away, you are processing your own experiences. And I want you to take your experience and apply it to someone else. And so I think the facilitator, the facilitator has to be vulnerable. The facilitator needs to be willing to share because I want people to see me, to see my story, the stories that I share about my sons and their experiences, the stories that I share about my grandson. When you take my story and apply it to your life, that's how the impact begins. Now, hopefully their walk away, they need now need to do anti-racism training, microaggression training. Um, I recommend the implicit bias assessment that Harvard has. I utilize the racial healing circle and workshops as the beginning of a journey. It is not a solution. It is not a part of the checklist. My goal when you leave a racial healing circle or workshop is for you to think about your own individual story, but I want you to remember me and relate it back to me. And that's where it starts from the bottom up. And so where when you now sitting at the table making a decision about a policy or the next resident that you're admitting into this medical school, how are you making that decision? And, and that's ultimately always the goal. It is for me, it is a long-term goal about if you are sitting in a position of power or have the ability to influence a community, how are you making these decisions about somebody else's life that look like me? All that and beyond that, I, I think once we get through the process that Sharon just laid out, I've been trying to engage in more liberation work that for uh, people of color going through this process, we're more than just our oppression, that we need to think about ways in which we also celebrate the joy. I always struggle with this word, but I'll use it, resiliency, all the things that ourselves and our ancestors have gone through and accomplished, that sometimes when we're in these dark spaces and talking about uh, the systems that have harmed us, I, I don't know if we've always centered joy, pleasure, play in, in kind of our healing process. So I think once, you know, that truth is there, uh, once people feel heard and recognized, again, going back to Sharon, how do we get to humanity? And humanity is also discussing our strengths and what we both individually and collectively bring to ourselves, our families, our communities, and our whole world. Yeah, and, you know, I think for me, I think a lot about the design of the process. So in terms of your question, Milagros, and thinking about the participants, and I know earlier on, I think it was Sharon who talked about how are we being strategic or thinking more thoughtfully about what we're creating and what we're inviting folks to participate in. I'm thinking about, you know, especially in the work of intergroup dialogue where we have, like I have worked with a white colleague where she did work with white folks right around their whiteness and thinking about how they're implicated in this conversation right and i did sort of a you know folks of color by poc specific space right and it's interesting always what surfaces in each of those respective spaces and then when we come together what filters in and out as a result of folks coming together. And that's even a point of conversation as well. And so I think there's something about that's a strategy, but I think in the questions that we ask in the types of engagement that we're inviting folks to participate in, where, at what points is it insulated and at what point is there sort of a cross-pollination and and i think the the thinking around that i think is really important um making sure that we're centering and honoring those who are who are mostly impacted by this issue right um always and that's that's really part of my practice and my philosophy so thank you everyone for those responses that was really rich and i think that's a, a great segue into the next question about Today, we can get access to a lot of videos that 
demonstrate racialized violence and trauma right before our eyes with the most current one related to Tyree Nichols. So on one hand, this reminds some people who may be in denial about racism that is still alive and, and well. And then on the other hand, people are facing vicarious forms of trauma. So they may not be the one experiencing it personally, but with this immediate access to these images, to these videos of brutality, how might you all share the way that we can kind of speak to this emotional overload that individuals are experiencing vicariously by having immediate access? So it's interesting, you know, when I listen to that question in order, and I really can only really speak for myself, and this is what I utilize for other people who are struggling with the constant, the constant overload, I think it becomes a case-by-case -case individual basis. For example, I refuse to watch George Floyd or Tyree Nichols' video. I've not seen it. I cannot continue to do this work um, at the level that I do to engage all audiences all people, regardless of where they come into this space, from a place of humanity, if I am continually barraged by the videos that seem to be normal everyday practice. And even to Michael's point, I've facilitated spaces where people of color are very clear about, I'm not trying to help anybody else, let them figure it out. And I validate that. If that's how you feel and this is not a space for you, then then it's okay. And because it seems like the trauma that, you know, especially marginalized people have already endured seems to be re-endured, you know, reinstated and reactivated day in and day out because of social media. And so I, when we have these conversations and they want to engage in this work, I expect people, I respect people who are coming into the space no matter where they are, beginning, figuring it out. Or I had someone say, I just think, you know, a, a white man say to me, I just think I'm a moron, that I've only spent the last year recognizing what has been going on. I want to thank you for that. And everybody has to be able to unpack this trauma the best way that they know how. And so giving, you know, recommending, you know what, you know, taking some time off. One of my colleagues, Professor Tia Sheree Gaynor, who's at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, she integrated racial healing and mindfulness in her classrooms, especially when there's an incident or something has happened. And so she makes sure that she takes time in her class. Let's use a racial healing prompt. Let's do some mindfulness practices before we even have a conversation about what I'm supposed to teach today, especially with this onslaught, it seems to be of racialized trauma and violence, you know, continuously. So I, I just think people need to, and be willing to, especially with students in higher ed, be willing to meet all of them where they are. Yeah, I think all, all of what was said was just perfect and spot on. And I think for even us being the people who have to often hold this space, often finding out when you need to back down and that being okay and that being valid, especially for individuals in higher ed, uh, those with minoritized identities, they're constantly being asked. I, I think uh, Michael brought this up earlier. They're constantly being the ones asked to hold space, hold the panels, do this, and enter in that space of hypervisibility when these critical incidents happen. That's not healthy either, that yes, we can avoid watching the videos in order to have that protection because, like you said, true vicarious trauma is very real. But we also have to give our permission to not hold space when community is asking us to, being able to model that practice of care. Uh, that I think one thing that I learned, and I think a lot of people learned over the pandemic, is the importance of collective care. 
there were times and periods where we all showed up for each other, whether it was doing those what drive-by uh, birthday parties in your car for people's kids because you couldn't have close contact or uh, a friend did daily karaoke um, uh, online. Uh, we, we saw value in collective care. And I said one thing as we were moving in the later stages of the pandemic is I hope we don't lose that because I thought that was a very important exercise in how as a individualistic society, we can and will engage in collective care, going back to our roots and in, uh, indigenous and African heritage and engaging in collective care and giving ourselves permission to do that, that unfortunately we're seeing these incidents play out over and over again. So how do we protect and care for ourselves first and then for each other next? I think something that something that April shared about sort of the piece around going back to sort of our indigenous and African traditions as it pertains to sort of our collectivist approach to care. And, you know, I, as someone who is, you know, a multi-ethnic Latinx person, families from the Caribbean, and I think that was probably one of the most difficult aspects of the pandemic is that we're always together, <laughs> right? Like, I think we're, we're always showing up for each other. We're always, you know, going to each other's homes. We're always attentive to each other, even when, you know, we were, you know, sort of in different states. And so I actually think, you know, for, for for many communities, that is the way of life. And I think the pandemic sort of that 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 was sort of one of the interrupt some of the social and cultural interruption pieces that I think really affected a lot of black and brown communities. And so I think, you know, thinking about the work that I do with, you know, college students or really just community settings, I actually think that our return to each other is almost like a, our default. Like, I think there's there's people using the kitchen. There's a lot, you know, right before I came here, one of our students just got admitted into her master's program at the NEAC School of Education. And, and literally, she just was overjoyed. And literally, everyone in the program room came around her, gave her a hug, and they were all in tears crying. Like, there was, like, a joy, like so proud of you you did it like and i was like y'all don't make me cry i'm about to go into this podcast right but but i i guess i i say that to say that is what we do like that is who we are and i think the part of it is like it's the subculture that is within this dominant you know culture of like american individualism right that we're navigating and that's what's painful I think for a lot of us, it's just what we do. Like we we look out for each other, we cook for each other, we cry when you know over joy when one of us is succeeding. So, I think for me, you know, in those moments, uh, to Truth's question, I always witness us coming back to each other and just doing what we already do, if not ten times more. I think part of what makes it hard is that it's happening in this sort of broader context of a university where you know the culture is like it's it's all on you right like we hear this all the time your your success is up to you you're you know you follow your own path you're a student right but like i think for for a lot of us especially communities of color like it happens in community it doesn't happen in isolation and so for me i think it's just more of always centering that and supporting that over anything and that that tends to be it always brings me, that's my center of gravity, is always going back to that. Thank you so much for that, Michael. I think that was such a beautiful and wholesome way to close us out. And it actually reminded me of a quote that one of my mentors from Arizona shared with me that, you know, very much centers love and heart in the work that we do that, like, if our neighbor is doing well, then we're doing well. You know, it's it's a collective effort that moves us forward and you're very much right in this capitalist neoliberalist system. It's all, you know, it's it's so cutthroat and so individualized that we can forget sometimes. But it sounds like based on the conversations that we all collectively had today, you know, we're, we're all looking out for each other and we continue 
to engage in this work. So with that said, just really, really want to thank you all so, so much for your deep intentional responses with regard to the rich power uh, that this racial healing framework provides us with. I, I really love what was shared about this work being a lifelong endeavor and that it's not only about healing, but rebuilding as well, and that we ought to recognize both in higher education settings, community spaces as well, how crucial it is to name the truth of historical harms in order to transform, you know, like these spaces and, and also acknowledge that there's power in this acknowledgement of truth of what actually took place. And there was also a point that was made about this duality that marginalized, uh, historically marginalized folks inhabit, that it's not, it's not easy to navigate these spaces in which harm has taken place. And so it's just so, so, so challenging sometimes to, to navigate these spaces. Um, April, we really value the point that you made about us being more than our oppression. We also have joy, resiliency, ancestry that can be part of our healing process too, and that there's so much value in reclaiming that agency, right? and radical hope and so you know really appreciate you uplifting community care you know as, as we engage in in society and hopefully not losing that as as we move away from the pandemic it's, it's kind of crazy to think that i believe it was this month three years ago that everything started closing down and it's like wow that was three years ago like boy uh, time time moves fast, but it's still very much present. Um, and and Michael, once again, you know, you, I think you raised really valuable points about the intentionality of the spaces that we created. Not only the physical space that needs to be considered, but also like how people get grouped, the opportunity to provide people to choose to enter this work in ways that feel good to them, uh, that feel natural, and also valuing the centering of people that you know are most impacted by these issues as well. It was a couple podcast episodes ago that. We, we had a speaker, a, a community organizer that mentioned that oftentimes the folks that are closest to the problem are the ones closest to developing a solution. And it's so important for us to center those voices. And so, you know, just, just thank you for reminding us of that. And I guess just to close us out, you know, as we move forward in our respective and collective journeys, I really hope all of you take good care of yourselves, you know, find hope strength and community in your respective spaces as this work is not easy but it's important to speak not only our truth but the truth in order to transform systems and structures in such a way that centers historically marginalized communities so with that said just on behalf of the crew here just thank you all so much and it was such a pleasure to engage in this conversation as always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.